0: Daniel, chapter 12, verses 5 through 13. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has finally broken, has finally been has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the end, until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, There will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Well, Probably the most
1: significant day on the American calendar would be the 4th of July, uh, American Independence Day, they call it. It was the day that America celebrated, br- or the day that America celebrates breaking free from the British Empire. On the 4th of July, the Congress of the United States of America, then only 13 states, uh, agreed on their Declaration of Independence, which was issued to the British government to tell them they were no longer going to be a part of England and the British Empire. Uh, The declaration outlined why they were claiming their independence from Britain. Well, today we're looking at a passage that's really a kind of declaration of independence as well. Uh, We're told about Cyrus, who was the Persian leader, and he was the man who actually made the declaration. A declaration for the people of Israel to be able to return home to their land. We're going to see more about that in the passage as we look and see what it is that Daniel has in mind for us today. But we're going to begin with chapter 9. And chapter 9 is a prayer from Daniel. Seventy years have now passed since the people were taken into captivity in Babylon and, and were removed from their own land, dragged off to live in semi-slavery in Babylon The temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed, but 70 years on these exiles still consider themselves to be God's people and their whole identity as God's people is bound up with the land, bound up with this parcel of land on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea that God had given them, Palestine, uh, the land of Israel. Israel. But memories of that land must have been starting to grow fairly dim for most of those people. Seventy years has passed. Daniel is now a man of probably close to 85 years of age. And most of those people were probably not even born in the land, in the promised land. They were born in Babylon. But their hope as God's people is that God will restore them there's this overwhelming desire that they will be able to one day go back to the land that God had promised to give them. And when we reach chapter 9, Daniel is reading through the book of Jeremiah. It sounds really weird, doesn't it, that one book of the Bible is actually reading another book of the Bible, but that's what Daniel says he was doing. He was reading what Jeremiah had written, and Jeremiah said that their captivity would only be for 70 years. It's probably a passage like this that Daniel was reading. This is what the Lord says. This is from the book of Jeremiah. When 70 years are completed for for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise and bring you back to this place. For I know for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and I will bring you back from captivity, back bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Jeremiah says that when they call on God, when they pray to him, he will answer their prayer. So that's exactly what Daniel does in Daniel chapter 9. He prays. He prays about the unfaithfulness of Israel. He he confesses what it is that they've done wrong. He lists their failures, confesses their wrongdoing and pleads with God to be gracious, to allow them to return to the land. Now, when you turn to the beginning of chapter 10, we're told that it's now into the reign of Cyrus, and Cyrus was the man who made that decree, who said that the people could return to the land, and not only could they return to the land, Cyrus decreed that they be given the materials and the money that they needed to rebuild Jerusalem, and that's what happened. He declared that the Israelites could return to the land and rebuild the city that had been destroyed. Cyrus's approach to the whole thing was completely the opposite of the Babylonians. The Babylonians were destroy and conquer. Cyrus wanted to control people by having them like what he was doing. So he sends the people back to Israel so that they can rebuild Jerusalem. Now we don't know for certain but it seems as though Daniel wasn't among those who made the trip back to the promised land presumably it was his age that prohibited him from doing it he's now a man of about 85 years of age he'd lived the last 70 years in babylon and from what we can understand probably lived out the rest of his life in babylon but daniel would have been good would have been glad to hear that the people were going home glad to hear that their captivity was over glad to hear that jerusalem would be rebuilt but daniel was in no doubt Wondering what the future was going to be for these people when they return. And that's what he's shown in this vision in chapters 10 and 11. Now, this vision in 10 and 11 is a little bit different to the one that we saw last week. It's kind of less apocalyptic. Uh, Last week we saw beasts coming up out of the sea and taking control of things, horns growing out of heads, horns that could speak, strange stuff. Well, this one is a whole lot more straightforward. Daniel is met on the banks of the Tigris River by an angel. And the angel speaks to him to comfort him and to reassure him. And what's laid out here in these two chapters is really what the future will be for the Persian and the Greek empires in that part of the world. Now, time doesn't permit us to go into it in detail, but Daniel is given a fairly detailed account of what's going to happen around the Mediterranean Sea over the next Two or three hundred years. And the two major players in this game will be the Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire will follow that. Now, we can make those direct identifications because the passage actually tells us that it is the Persian and the Greek empires. We don't have to guess. It's actually right there in the passage. And it's quite incredible detail that Daniel's actually given about the political maneuverings, the intrigue and the struggles that will take place. Battles that will be fought, alliances that will be formed, kingdoms that will come and go, rulers who will rise up and deceptions that will take place as well. But I'm guessing they're not the details that Daniel was most interested in. He's being painted a picture of everything that's going to happen in the Mediterranean Sea at that time. Now, if Daniel has learned nothing else in the last 70 years, he knows that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. He's seen that happen in his own lifetime with the different kingdoms that he's lived under. But what's Daniel going to be interested in looking at in this vision We had a a lunch for extended members of the family down in Mort Bay a couple of years ago, so I had uh, all of my wider family on my mother's side were all down there, so my cousin sent me through this photo. Now, when you get a photo like that, what's the first thing that you do? You look where you are, don't you? That's, I mean, you don't care about anyone else. First of all, you want to see where you are. And then secondly, you want to see other members of your family. I mean, the rest of them, you don't care about them, really. You only ever see them at Christmas. So it's really only your family that you're concerned about. Now, can I say, I think that's the way Daniel would have looked at this vision. He's really being shown what's happening with the Persians and the Greeks in this vision. But his interest is really not in them. His interest is in his family, God's people and they're returning to the land. What's going to happen to them? How will things work out? Will they be able to re-establish the kingdom? Will they be able to put a king on the throne? They would have been the questions Daniel was concerned about. But sadly, the news is not good. Daniel's told that God's people are in for a difficult time. They may be allowed to return to the land, but life is not going to be peaceful or easy. Uh, a fair amount of this vision is taken up with describing the work of one particular Greek leader, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, this is a coin that Antiochus issued uh, during his time as the ruler of Greece and as the ruler of that part of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, he was the first Greek ruler to actually put wording Onto a coin, and the wording on this coin says "King Antiochus, Image of God, Bearer of Victory." As you can imagine, he's a fairly shy, humble character. You know, he's, uh, he does just likes to sort of play it in the background there. Uh, actually, he was he was quite a strange man. His, his nickname, even from his own people, was Antiochus the Loony or Antiochus the Madman, um, and he was called that because of his incredibly erratic behaviour and he was a a vindictive, spiteful man as well. He brought about incredible suffering for God's people, Israel. His reign of terror seemed to have been especially targeting them. Uh, He desecrated the temple that had been rebuilt in Jerusalem and he did that by sacrificing pigs in there in order to make it completely unclean for God's people. But then he also turned it into a place where foreign gods could be worshipped. He was bent on torturing and persecuting the Israelites who had returned to the land. And God's people seem to be completely powerless to do anything about it. See, they're still under foreign rule. They're still living as part of another kingdom. Sure, they're back in the land, but somebody else is still calling the shots and telling them what they can and can't do. And for a time, it was the Greek Empire. When you get to Daniel chapter 10, uh, if you've got your Bible there, you can open it up to... Sorry, Daniel chapter 11. It gives a bit of a description. It talks about uh, um, when Antiochus and the Greeks were attempting to invade Egypt and take control of it. Uh, Egypt is the the people of the south and and the Greeks are the people of the north. Uh, Chapter 11, and follow along from verse number 29... At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. But this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships from the western coastland will oppose him and he will lose heart and he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. That's against the Israelites. He will return and show favour to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. They mount a brief resistance against Antiochus, but ultimately It's a few people fighting against a massive empire. But have a look at what it says in verse 33. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive little help and many who are not sincere will join them some of the wise will stumble so that they so that they are refined purified and made spotless until the time of the end for it will still come at the appointed time now again i'm only guessing because the passage doesn't tell us but i'm guessing this must have been slightly depressing news for daniel to hear that the people are going to return to the land but they're going to be smashed The temple's again going to be desecrated. Yes, the people are allowed back to the land, but the news is not great. But the vision doesn't end there. In chapter 12, we have the close of the vision. After Daniel has been shown the struggles between the Greeks and the Persian empires, there's one last glimpse into the future. He's shown what will happen at the end of time. Uh, have a look, Daniel chapter twelve, and partway through verse number one, there will be a time of distress such as not ha- such has not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake: some to everlasting life, others to shame. Everlasting contempt. See, beyond all the political pushing and shoving that may take place in our world, Daniel's shown that God still has it all completely under control and He has the end of all things under control. His people will not be forgotten, His people will not be abandoned forever. Daniel's shown this image of the resurrection, of the final judgment, when when those who who have died will be raised again. And did you see what it said in those verses? That everyone will be raised, some will be raised to eternal life, others to what Daniel calls everlasting contempt. And the basis for the judgment will be whether or not your name's written in that book. Revelation talked about that book as well, that that the names of God's people will be recorded in there. So what Daniel's shown is pretty simple in the end, isn't it? No matter what happens in the future, all God's people can be assured that those who have trusted God and sought to be faithful, they can look forward to sharing an eternity with him. They'll be raised to everlasting life. They will be raised to an everlasting kingdom that God will establish that the Son of Man will rule over. And more than that, Daniel's told about an inheritance that he'll receive. Verse 13, as for you, go your way till the end, you will rest and then at the end of days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. New Testament talks about that repeatedly, the inheritance that we have, that we share what Jesus has in that new kingdom. I'm sure that if Daniel were to compare the hardships that he faced in his life with what it is that God has in store for him, I'm pretty sure he'd say it's no contest. In fact, I'm certain that he'd say it's no contest And I'm sure if you said to Daniel, would you do it all again knowing that that inheritance is there, knowing that that kingdom is there that you will one day be a part of for all eternity, I'm pretty sure Daniel would say yes. Sure, he suffered in his life, but God has an eternal inheritance in store for him. Sure, it's been a a tough 70 years living in Babylon But he knows that when this life is over, he'll be a part of an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever. There's a verse in Romans that I'm pretty sure Daniel would have agreed with wholeheartedly. This is what Paul says. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Whatever we might be going through here, well, it's not worth comparing to what God has in store for us. Is what Daniel's saying. We had some friends in our church up on the north coast who uh, lived in a shed while their house was being built. Um, It was the shed that all of the farm machinery was kept in. So when you walked into the shed, first thing you smelt was this overwhelming smell of diesel that it was all over the place. All of these farm machinery parked around this place and they'd kind of cordoned off a little area and put up some petitions so that they could live in this shed while they built their new house. From the kitchen of the shed you could actually look up to the top of the hill where the house was being built. It uh, was very breezy uh, when the wind was blowing Uh, It was very loud because there was no insulation in the roof, so the rain hitting the top of the roof, and we got a lot of rain up on the north coast, uh, made it virtually impossible to hear anything while you were in the shed. But they knew what they had in store. Uh, They'd seen the plans for the house, and, and they could watch out the kitchen window as the house was being built. They knew that they wouldn't be in the shed forever. And they knew that they could put up with that short time that they would be in the shed because there was something far better in store for them. And that's what Daniel's being shown in this vision, isn't it? And that's what we need to be convinced of as well. All those who, who have their trust in Jesus need to remember that there is a better thing in store for us when this life comes to an end. The day will come when Jesus will return to this earth to judge... And to reward those who have their trust in him. And those who have ignored him, those who have shut him out of their lives, well, they have to stand before Jesus as judge. He's promised to take us to be with him for all eternity. Well, can I say that knowing that, that should lead us to do two things. First of all, it should lead us to hope. We have an incredible hope in store for us, an incredible inheritance in store for us when this life comes to a close. For Daniel and his friends, it was actually hardship that made them take their eyes off that hope. I'm sure that the difficulties they faced would sometimes seem all-consuming and they needed to remember the hope that they had. Hardship was the thing for them but I'm not sure that it is hardship for us. I think it might be the good life that actually gets us to take our eyes off what God has in store for us. The the prosperity and the comfort that we enjoy in this life will probably be the thing that leaves us not hoping for much more. We can feel that life here in Balmain is pretty darn good. So we don't look forward to something better. Sometimes I think we probably should be a little bit more dissatisfied with life here. I'm not saying we should want more or expect more while we're in this place, but we should be dissatisfied because we know that God has a better thing in store for us. We should recognise that the best that this world has to offer is not good enough. It's not what we hope for that it's only what God will provide through his son Jesus. I've got a funny feeling that that verse is not the one that we need. We probably need to change just one word in that sentence. Uh, I consider our present sufferings, no. I consider our present assets are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. But the other thing that this passage should encourage us to do is to keep pressing on. Paul faced incredible hardships in his life and his ministry. We, we read about them in the pages of the New Testament. And there's one incredible passage in 2 Corinthians where he talks about all of the difficulties that he's faced, the number of times that he's been in prison, the number of times that he's been beaten and whipped. The amazing thing, though, when you read through Paul's letters is that he never asks the churches to pray that his hardships will stop. He only ever asks that they would pray that he would keep pressing on, that he would remain faithful, that he would persevere. And I think that needs to be the lesson for us in our lives as well. We should make sure that our Christian lives are our highest priority, the most important thing about who we are, that we keep pressing on. What's that going to look like in your life? Well, it means that you place a priority on your relationship with God that you know that that's the most important thing about you. Not your job, not the clothes that you wear, not the car that you drive, but your relationship with God is the most important thing about you. So you seek to grow in that relationship, to grow in your knowledge and love of God, to keep reading God's word, to keep coming before him in prayer, to thank him for all that he's done for us but it will also mean that your priority will be to care and love and support other fellow believers. That's the thing that we're continually encouraged to do in the Bible. Jesus says that that'll be the mark of your discipleship, that you love one another, that you love the people here in this building, not just the ones who are your friends, but all of them, that you seek to build them up and encourage them that you keep meeting together with them. In Bible study here on Sunday at PWA, that, that you get together with them to encourage them and support them in their Christian lives. Support them when they're unwell. Rejoice with them when the great things happen in their life. God has given us an incredible hope that when this life draws to a close, there's a kingdom that we'll be a part of for all eternity and we need to make sure that we're motivated by that hope and that that leads us to live productive lives as followers of Jesus.